Welcome to Built to Scale e-commerce show with Darius and Justin, your backstage pass to the eight and nine figure e-commerce world. Guys, welcome to Built to Scale e-commerce show by Atkins Agency. And today we'll be interviewing Leo Tropiano, a founder of Moxie Jeans, a Chicago-based men's denim brand recently named the fastest growing private denim company by Inc. And stay tuned for this episode as Leo is going to share a valuable piece of advice on breaking into the industry you really have no experience in and what it takes to become one of the fastest growing menswear brands in only four years. And of course, the secret to become a five-star customer experience master. So Leo, super excited to have you here. How are you doing today? Good. Yeah, I'm excited to be on. Definitely. Cool. So maybe you could tell a little bit more, you know, how the Moxie was born because, you know, initially it was born from actually your problem that you had and the need for it. Yeah. So I went to school and always knew I would be an entrepreneur. I kind of came from a family of entrepreneurs. So I got an accounting general business degree and went into the real world working for a big four accounting firm. But that entrepreneurial itch was definitely still there. So I immediately started thinking of ideas for businesses. I had a whole bunch of them that never came to anything from like a real estate app. We were in New York and going through the struggles of trying to find an apartment to, I think after that, it was immediately kind of into the apparel space, strangely, without having any experience in the industry. But yeah, the jeans was kind of a problem I was experiencing. I wanted something that looked good but didn't sacrifice any comfort. And I was just very surprised that you couldn't find it out there. Hmm. Okay. And say, you know, what's like the Moxie, the first thing you started in fashion industry, or do you have some pre-built experience there? We had one other thing that we tried was was t-shirts. And that was super small. (laughs) That was kind of my first dive into the apparel space. I think everybody starts with it. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. There's a few hundred t-shirts and... I think I sold them to family and friends, but pretty much forced them on them. And they were fine, but didn't take off or the product wasn't there by any means. But it was a good learning experience that definitely led that kind of bridged the gap to the jeans. Okay. And tell me, when you went into the denim, right, in jeans, did you notice some barriers to entry? Maybe allowed you to innovate or beat the competition there? Yes, barriers to entry. It's tough for apparel because... I'd say the biggest one is meeting the minimum order quantities. So mm-hmm. you, know, you go to jeans, and you know many of the manufacturers require three to five thousand units just to make a style, not even just jeans. So that's per color, essentially. Yeah, so that's huge. I mean, that's an astronomical, nearly six-figure investment right there. So you need a lot of capital to start. Or on the flip side, you can find factories that will do smaller quantities but the price will be double or triple what it would be otherwise. So MOQs were really tough. I think the benefit there was I really had to get you know, sneaky about finding good factories that could do smaller quantities and eventually kind of grow from there and then kind of up to you know, factories that could hire or handle higher volumes. So, yeah. Okay. And tell me, how did you go about solving that minimal order quantity issue besides factories? Did you, for example, raise cash or fully bootstrapped it? Yes, we're bootstrapped. But the big play at the time was to do a Kickstarter, like a crowdfunding campaign, so that mm-hmm. we wouldn't have to kind of front the cash. We'd get the cash and then we could use that to pay for the inventory. So yeah, we did a Kickstarter in I think, 2014. So a year or two before launching Mugsy, it was under a different brand. It eventually kind of dissolved. 
but I learned a lot and kind of took the concept, hit the drawing board and started fresh from there, working on it over a few years and then eventually kind of rolling up to quit my job and shoot for mugs full time. So yeah, the Kickstarter was a cool way to test the concept without needing the capital. And at the time, Kickstarter is, I don't know what the environment for crowdfunding is anymore, but at the time it was super hot. People were really into it. So it's it kind of the perfect option for us. Yeah, back at this, you know, everybody was still kind of having a trust because right now I believe like there are like some companies that didn't deliver of what we promised on Kickstarter. This is kind of messed it up. But you know, you absolutely killed it, right? So maybe you can share a bit more about your experience of actually, you know, how did you navigate the waters? Because you didn't know anything, right? Kickstarter was a new thing for you. Wool, you know, menswear, et cetera, was a new thing. And you had to learn so many different things. So how did you navigate them? Oh man, that was tough. I think at the end of the day, you just don't stop. You just keep learning and trying as much as you can. And it sounds kind of cliche, but just don't quit. And eventually you'll figure it out. Or you'll find someone who knows how to do it and willing to give you their time and advice to figure it out. So yeah, it's pretty daunting when you do something like this because next thing you know, you need to... It sounds easy. Like, oh, it's e-commerce. You just create a website. It's like, okay, but you need copy for the website, like all the, the text and wording, and then you need graphics, and then you need photography. So these are all things you either pay a lot of money for or you find a cheap camera and... and just do it. <laughs> figure it out. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, it kind of reminds me of when I started my first e-commerce business. I was just like 18. Just got the products and you're like, hey, hiring a photographer, you know, it's relatively expensive. So I literally yeah. learned how to do a photo shoot myself and nailed it. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, this is kind of entrepreneurship and it's interesting. And you know, you kind of launched with Kickstarter, right? What did you do after? You got your proof of concept, you made the sales. Next was I bet manufacturing and making sure, you know, that stock was made well. I definitely learned a lot from the manufacturing part of doing the Kickstarter because that was the first production run we'd ever done. So not even the manufacturing, but then you actually get the product and then you have to ship it. So I remember I had a few hundred jeans shipped to my apartment and next thing you know, I'm like, okay, well, how do I ship these to hundreds of people? So that was another one of those learning curves. Like, okay, I have to buy a label printer and figure out how to use Excel to create hundreds of labels at the same time instead of Taking yeah. it in one by one. But manufacturing wise, huge learning process. I think we kind of quickly learned the factory we'd chosen wasn't the right one. So that was kind of the main barrier was finding a new factory thereafter that would work with us. And again, running into those MOQ issues. And jeans are mostly made outside of the US. So it wasn't as simple as you know trying to go fly somewhere and visit factories and going to trade shows and talking to as many people as you can. So, um, yeah, the Kickstarter was, I would say it was a success in that it proved the concept, but it also proved that the product wasn't there for me or the manufacturing process. So, yeah, like I said, kind of dissolved the Kickstarter company. And I spent about two years kind of working from scratch or rebuilding it all from scratch, finding the right partner, really nailing down the product. So I think we were more focused on concept in the beginning. And then, you know, with Mugsy, I really wanted to nail the product first. So the Kickstarter is a cool learning experience, but kind of minimal risk and not having to put out much capital in the beginning. And I think one thing you mentioned was Kickstarter crowdfundings struggle a bit nowadays because not all the brands were delivering. It was super important to me that we delivered and on time. So we were lucky to do that, but definitely took a lot of effort. 
Yeah, I'm not seeing anything bad because I know how hard it is to figure everything out and it's completely normal. Majority right. of Kickstarters are like first-time business owners, etc. No capital. First time having to face the same problems you have faced. And it's completely normal to not know all the answers. So you mentioned about finding a partner, right? So was it like a manufacturer or just like a business partner that helped you out? Right, yes. So in apparel, your manufacturer is your biggest partner, especially in the beginning. So after a Kickstarter, it was clear to me that the manufacturer we found, which was based in LA, they just didn't make great products. They were bad at communicating, meeting deadlines. It was very clear to me we had to find someone else. So uh, I immediately went to trade shows. And luckily, I was living in New York at the time, and there was a big denim trade show there. And from that, I was kind of able to meet our first factory and get samples made and all the signs seem to kind of check the boxes, you know, communicates well, on time delivery, that kind of stuff. And yeah, the rest is history. <laughs> and how did you start to bring in sales? Because your Kickstarter was exhausted, right? So you need to figure out something else. Yes. I think the first step was taking all the customers from the Kickstarter. They've already invested in the brand. They took a risk on you. So they definitely kind of felt more than just like a customer. They almost felt like part of the brand and partners. So leveraging that email list was huge. But then that's only a few hundred people, or at least it was for us. So immediately, you're just kind of sitting there like, all right, I'm going to... Leading up to the launch, I'm going to launch this company. We're going to get all these sales. It's going to be great. And then you kind of exhaust that email list. Now what? No one's come to the site. No one's heard of it. So back to the drawing board. And to me, in the early days, it was super important to experiment with everything. Do a lot of low-risk experiments. So it wouldn't cost you much. wouldn't take a lot of time, anything like that. But if you see the signs of traction, then to me, it was about doubling down in those areas that you see success. So I think early on, I tried a bunch of stuff. Pretty much anything you can think of, I tried. Even down yeah. selling on the street to people walking by. But luckily, <laughs> that wasn't the most successful. I think some of the digital ads like Instagram, <laughs> yeah. Facebook, learning that, were doing well. Google, that kind of stuff. And I was able to kind of learn enough just to get up and running and be a little dangerous there. So it just kind of came from that. Do little experiments, see what works. Invest more in it. Keep trying new stuff. Invest more in that. And go from there. Yeah, just basically grow hacking mental, testing as many things at minimal viable product and just seeing what comes out. It's kind of very similar to what we are doing with our clients, you know, just testing multiple stuff, seeing what sticks and just doubling down. Kind of like proven concept works time and over time over again. You, know, you just have to keep sticking to it. That's the trick, at least from my experience. Hundred percent. Yeah. Cool. What you have tried, you know, what haven't worked, you know, because you mentioned like digital ads, yeah, we worked. And you mentioned, you know, that selling on street maybe wasn't like the best thing. Has there been like any other interesting things you have tested? Oh man, so many things. <laughs> so many we can go through it. Yeah, there's way more things that didn't work than did, which sounds daunting, but it's all kind of learning experiments. But the ones that are sticking out were, I tried a lot of store stuff. In the early days, this might be more apparel focused, but tried doing like trunk shows, they were called in stores, you know, setting up a little table in the front of the store and talking to customers as they walk in, like, hey, I'm going to my new brand, that kind of thing. Did a lot of that early on, even tried getting on the shelves of some stores. And I think within like a few months, I'd gotten into about five stores in Chicago, but because it was a new brand, they were yeah. 
not willing to buy the inventory. They say, we'll pay you when you sell it kind of stuff. And it was such small numbers that it just wasn't moving the needle as I knew I needed to. So I think that was one of the bigger ones to me was that let's try the brick and mortar, the more physical in-person retail experience, see if that's working. And it took a lot of time, but quickly learned like that wasn't a good way to scale, at least at that time. If you were to do it, I'm sure there's a way, but just one guy in a suitcase. Yeah. That's not the answer. So definitely went back to the drawing board from there and said, okay, how can we do this where you can reach millions of people with digital advertising or you know, web advertising, that kind of stuff? And yeah, went from there. What are like the things that are working the best for you right now from digital advertising? Yeah, I think Facebook and Instagram are big. You know, Google's big. YouTube's been pretty uh, cool recently. It's been doing better. Yeah. I don't know if that's just people you know, sitting on their uh, couch. We more. have seen yeah. like increase in the YouTube too, but it happens with YouTube a lot, but we do over-report your data quite a bit. So my recommendation is to get some sort of more an advanced analytical software and just real data compared to other channels. Because like YouTube just loves to steal the data. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I'm sure. We have a digital agency that we're currently working with. I'm sure they know all the details of that stuff. Yeah. But I just remember trying YouTube a few years ago and not working and just kind of being surprised recently, like within the last year, I've seen that one in particular. I think a really big one is podcasts. You know, we've invested a good amount in like the podcast or kind of serious XM kind of stuff with brands like Barstool Sports and Howard Stern, that kind of thing. Podcasts are radio hosts with like a really loyal following. Yeah. Those can do well. So yeah, just some mix of all that stuff. You know, how can you get in front of new people on a podcast and then retarget them with digital Obviously, marketing is kind of like a funnel and it's all kind of interconnected. So just figuring out the mix of it. But those are some of the main players that have worked really well for us in the past year or two, especially. <laughs> gotcha. And yeah, you figured out the marketing, how to get the sales. When growing up, did you evolve your product? Because I bet you got some feedback from people. And how did you go about this process? Yes. Yeah, that's a great one. So always have to be evolving. Even today, I'm always kind of poking holes in our products, which annoys our production team <laughs> to no end, I'm sure. But you have to just keep evolving and, and making sure that your product is a little cutting edge, but also meeting people's needs. So that was one of the bigger learning experiences I had early on was we did the Kickstarter. We were more of like a raw denim focus with maybe some stretch, but wasn't there at all. A lot of our genes in that Kickstarter were raw. So, and raw denim is, means not washed. It almost feels like cardboard, like craft paper, a grocery bag, paper bag from a grocery store. So the total opposite of what we do now. But you give them to your friends and family and ask them for their feedback. Have them try them on. But even look for the things they don't say because with friends and family, you know, they'll often tell you what <laughs> yeah. here. So for me, I would force my friends to wear the jeans or buy them and they'd take them home. And then, you know, I'd see them out at the bar like a month later and they're not wearing them. And I was like, okay, well, that's like a good sign. Something's wrong because why would they be choosing other jeans over mine if mine were as awesome as I wanted them to be? So just talking to as many people as you can. And in the early days, I was selling to my friends and family to begin with, especially. So talking to them, but yeah, talk to as many people as you can. Strangers are probably more valuable because they'll typically give it to you straight. You know, those yeah. shows I'm doing in stores got a lot of info from that. When you're trying to sell a product to someone, you know, you really learn what's wrong with it 
if someone's not giving you their credit card. So in the early days doing that, and then a year later, I iterated the product and focused more on what our core is. And then you notice this change in the way they're talking to you or their excitement about the product, or even just the fact that they're willing to pay you for it. So yeah. that's how you can tell you're on to something when the combo goes from like, hey, I need you to like buy this. What will it take for you yeah. to buy this? To them approaching you and saying, how can I buy this? How can I buy more of these? Then you know you're on the right path. And you know, it's pretty interesting because what I often see like CEOs, especially as a business is growing, we get too detached from customers. We stop, you know, answering calls. We stop reading emails. And suddenly, you know, we're in their own bubble of what they think are us working compared to what is actually, you know, a problem or something that a customer is talking about. So it's really cool, you know, that you're kind of able to stay back in touch with customers for some very simple means here. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you got to think when you're coming up with a brand idea, you're just guessing. It's a lot of assumptions. I think this product will work for these people. And then you try to make it and then you try to sell it to those people and there's a disconnect. So what is that disconnect? Figure it out, change the product, go back. It's easy to get stuck in the weeds when you're kind of designing a brand or a product. Even small stuff that you're just, you overlook because you're not the consumer you're thinking of as the creator that they'll point out and be like, you know, why did you do buttons instead of a zipper fly? And you're like, oh God, why did I do that? Okay, well, you tell me what you prefer. And they're like, well, this is why I prefer zippers. I'm like, well, that makes sense. Cool. And it seems so obvious, but it's hard to kind of step back from the forest, you know, whatever that thing is. (laughs) Yeah, so... The trees and talking to people and the customers that actually were wearing it. To me, that was what I found to be the most effective way of getting that kind of 30,000 view of what's going on. Yeah. And I mean, it's very similar to sometimes what I like to do because for me, it was also like relevation, just coming back to the roots and just talking with people and asking, hey, how do you like this type of content? What are you consuming every day? And suddenly you get so many ideas and answers and you have a solution to a problem that you thought you had for like six months. And you literally solved it in like two hours of calls with people. Yeah. Right. Yeah, just talking to someone and being like, oh, I don't yeah. like this about it. I'll pass. And you go, okay, I'll fix that then. (laughs) (laughs) Definitely. Been growing, right? I bet you made some mistakes. Are you open to share some of them? Because, you know, it's always a very exciting part to learn from other people's mistakes. Oh, yeah, so many mistakes. (laughs) (laughs) That's life of an entrepreneur. More mistakes than successes. 100%. And then there's that cliche of you have to learn from them and then they're not failures kind of thing. But it is true. You're going to fail a million times and you're going to make a million mistakes. And I think the businesses that survive have the founders who aren't willing to kind of let those stop you or crush you. Instead, you just kind of take them like, shit, you should have done that different. But I just won't do that again. And then next time, I'll do things differently. So I think to me early on, I'd say the biggest mistakes came from locking into something that was a little longer term or bigger than I needed it to be. Whether it was finding a third-party logistics company that would store our jeans and ship them. Okay, well, that's a one-year contract. And one year seems like a short time, but when you're growing that much, even a few months is tremendous, right? So I learned quickly, don't lock yourself into any long-term contracts. Almost every single time it ended up being like a big mistake. And luckily never fatal, but oftentimes you'd have to get out of it no matter what it took. It often required writing a check for money you didn't have kind of thing. So that would 
be the biggest one I would say is don't get locked in anything long-term or, or too big for you. You know, you have to remain agile because like I said, a week by week thing, the business is totally different if you're growing. Yeah, I think that's very good advice because I'm thinking like a lot of people, especially for growing fast, right? One year is a huge time. It's a long, long time frame. And like recently, for example, we scaled like one of our clients from what? I think it was 0.5 mil last year. Now we're at 25 million in a year. Wow. So if we would be locked in with your contracts mm-hmm. and other stuff, you know, we wouldn't even do like third of a current scale. No way. Right. So just agility to change things, hire more people and, and evolve. That's very important if you're planning to grow fast. And cool, I'm seeing having some one more interesting question for you about customer support. Because guys, you have almost like 6,000 five-star reviews, which is insane, right? What are you doing here to make this happen? Yeah, it's funny. We don't, we don't incentivize reviews in any way. I think we send emails after you make a purchase. Being like, hey, if you like them, leave a review. That'd be great. But how often have you done that? Usually I only leave reviews when it's a bad experience. Yeah, <laughs> that's reality. And we all often forget to do it when there's a good experience. But I think what I attribute those reviews to is just the fact that we really do focus on having an awesome product, having an awesome customer experience. And if we follow up at the right time with a, hey, you know, leave us a review if you're happy kind of thing. I'm always shocked at how many people are willing to leave reviews. And they're not just like, love these jeans, five stars. If you kind of dig, dig into our reviews, you see a lot of like crazy stories and, and people really yeah. getting in depth. And that to me is like the most fun part of the brand is just seeing how people are taking the jeans or the effect it's had on them or even just these quirky stories that come from it. But yeah, to me, it's just that constant focus on let's make these jeans as awesome as possible. You know, I always say mind blowing to my team. Let's make these like a mind blowing experience. And then even beyond that, you know, just following it up with service that's awesome as well. And that's probably the hardest part, but you just continue to remind yourself you need to have an awesome experience and nailing that into the heads of your team is super important. So I guess here comes into play just culture and, you know, having culture deck and values of a business, right? And just being on it all the time. So maybe you could talk a little bit more about how are you transmitting this knowledge to your people about the importance? Yeah, Yeah, I'm sure... My team is just so tired of hearing me repeat the same thing <laughs> over and over again. But that's yeah. really what it comes down to. And yeah. for customer service, to me, it was always, I think the secret sauce was just be human. There were so many times when we'd make a mistake and instead of just trying to kind of like push it to the side or ignore it or like push blame elsewhere, just tell the customer, hey, we screwed up and here's how we're going to make it up to you. And I'm doing everything I can to help make this right for you. And when you do that, you know, no matter how angry the first email is, you'll be amazed, yeah. maybe not that of 10, that they come back and just say, oh my God, thank you so much. And, you know, the first email was like, F you and F this, I hate you, I'll never come back. I'm telling you, you know, and then you just say, hey, yeah. man, I'm so sorry. This is what's going on. But don't worry, I did this, this, and this, and I'm going to do this, this, and this, and we're going to get you whole. And they're just like, wow. You know, like, I didn't care. think anyone would respond to this email. That's, yeah. You get that a lot. I wouldn't, think anyone would respond to this email at all. I thought it was just going to go to some like computer <laughs> robot kind of thing and get ignored. So uh, to me, it's just drilling that down to everyone on our team all the time. Like, every time you deal with a customer, treat them like you would your sibling or 
all the sibling you like or uh, <laughs> your books, but, sibling you, know, you like, right? Yeah, <laughs> that's you that's important. Yeah. Yeah. Treat them like a good friend. Treat them how you want to be treated. And that right there, I mean, that's pretty much all you need to know. Gotcha. And look, usually we like to close our podcast with one kind of important question because entrepreneurship is full of ups and downs. So how did you keep the sanity going through this journey? Oh my God. Yeah. Really <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. I think the first one would be have someone in your corner. And for me, that's my wife. So every day I come home, I kind of like vent a little or kind of tell her about my day and, and she's the best listener ever. She just gives me an ear and that's all I need. Sometimes you just need five minutes. Here's all the shit that went wrong today. Or sometimes you come home and you're like, here's why today was awesome. And that just kind of like relieves it. It's kind of off your chest. So to me, that's super helpful. Just having like a super supportive partner in my corner has been huge. But then even beyond that, I kind of find ways to detach. I feel like it's think the number one question I get from people is like, how much do you work? Friends, family, everyone's like, how many hours do you think you work? And it's my least favorite question because it's so incalculable. This isn't a nine to five. It's literally every minute you're thinking about it. If you're not thinking about it, you're on your phone looking at this or you're reading an article, which might not seem related, but it is like reading an economic outlook kind of thing. Or yeah. Another brand or on someone else's website or on my own website. It's just not, it's every waking moment. Right. Yeah. So it quickly became obvious to me that you have to find ways to just totally detach get away from your phone. But even then, you know, how can you get your brain off of it? How can you just kind of shut off Muggsy or the company? So I kind of dove into hobbies. I played guitar, but I kind of restarted my passion for that and found an instructor. So I started getting lessons that I would force myself to go to no matter how busy I was. I rebuilt dirt bikes for fun. So, you know, I buy old bikes and started working on the engines and stuff. Yeah. Just weird stuff that you have to kind of fully focus on. If you watch TV, the mind's running anyway. You see something yeah. happen in the show and then you're like, well, shit, that reminds me of this. And then next thing you know, you're not paying attention to the show and you're like on your phone. Or So to me, it's like find something you can do that really detaches. So yeah, those are the two things. Have an awesome person and partner that's super supportive and find ways to just totally disconnect them for me that involves these kind of totally consuming hobbies. Gotcha. So it seems like a very similar solution to what I'm doing because I just sometimes like to read, you know, some books that are like not about education, self-improvement, but you know, something absolutely stupid that you can just fully disconnect for. Like two hours a day makes a huge difference. Simple, but otherwise you just can't shut it off. There's like that click in the head. I just keep sticking and ticking and ticking, you know, hey, you are suddenly having a good idea <laughs> when you shouldn't be having one. <laughs> right. That's actually, I have a funny story for that. So I used to read a lot of business books, especially like early on. And that's yeah. how I learned a lot of the stuff that I used to get the brand off the ground. But then it got to the point where like the more I read these books, the more stressful it would be for me because I'm like living what they're talking about. So then it's like, I never escape business. So recently our COO gifted me the book Shoe Dog by Phil Knight, the founder of Nike. Yeah. And he checked in with me like a month or two later. He's like, hey man, like, what do you think of the book? I'm like, oh dude, I got 50 pages in. <laughs> and every time I would read yeah. it, my blood pressure would just skyrocket because all the problems he's talking about when he started Nike, I've experienced, you know, from finding yeah. a factory, 
you kind of had to switch last minute and to this and to that and hiring people. And you're just like, I read that book and it's not an escape. It's like, it's like doubling For living down. reality, oh. right? <laughs> yeah. So then I was like, I had to put it down. And now I pretty much read like strictly fiction. And it's typically like really out there, like science fiction kind of shit. Just because if there's any sort of real world reminder yeah. in there, I'm just going to go right back into the Muggsy mindset. And I got to disconnect. So that's a, that's a hilarious point. Definitely exactly. <laughs> Similar to what I'm doing. So, but Leo, super thankful for you coming to this podcast and sharing your experiences. Yeah, thank you for having me. This is cool. Enjoying this podcast? Consider subscribing and sharing it with your friends. This helps us to grow and create more amazing content like this for you.